when we meet experience at every level, at the conceptual level, at the emotional level, at the energetic level, and at levels that we can't even describe. Also at the visual level, at the auditory level, at the sensation level, when we meet experience fully, however that happens, and there's a lot of ways that can happen. It can happen by chance, by luck, by tragedy, by practice, by taking the backward step, perhaps. But when we do this, when this act of meeting everything, everything that arises and everything that does not arise, uh, then there is no practice in a very real way. I say something like this with caution because it's easy to grab something like that too early in, in your un unbinding process and just use it for more avoidance. And the avoidant tone of the human psyche is, it's got a lot of momentum to it. It's a simple process. It's, it's not complicated. It doesn't have a lot of parts. It's not actually hard to figure out, but it has a lot of momentum. And it knows how to use the emotional system in a way um, to keep itself intact, let's say. So you don't want to pick that up as a principle early on. There's nothing to do. There's no practice. There's no one, no reason to go to retreat, no reason to talk to or interact with somebody who's walked this path before me. No reason to meditate or self-inquire because who's gonna do that anyway, right? You can, you can adopt a sort of position like that early with no real insight, with no actual experiential insight, and it happens frequently. So I caution people against that. Um, but at some point, it, it does become clear that what is there to practice? Pristine clarity of Presence, the presencing uh, is unmistakable. It's at zero distance, not something you have to go out to. It doesn't even really come to you. There's no one to come to. There's nowhere. There's also nowhere that, that anything is missing. So um, this clarity is unsurpassed, unsurpassable, and very obvious. Now, what can be frustrating is you can touch into this clarity early on, or as the unbinding process is unfolding, and really feel like you're sort of in the Garden of Eden. And then you can be cast out of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> it, can, it can really feel like you found it and you lost it uh, again and again and again. Probably everyone here can recognize that. Seems to happen. Um, well, the strange thing about that is even that's not really happening. Never has been. We've never been cast out of anything. There's no in or out. There's no, dis there's no farther or nearer. The experience of farther, the experience of distance, of distancing, of subjectification, pulling back into a sense of a self apart, that whole sense is built out of nothing. It's, built, it's like built out of air, house of cards. But again, it has a certain momentum to it. And it's driven and preserved in a certain way by, you guessed it, you, your will, your sense of you, your sense of who you are. It's, again, nothing there. You'll never find it. 
never find it, but something in that will just says, no, 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 I can do this better. But it has to come back to a place to do that. It has to pull, pull away from life to subjectify, to make this seeming distance. And that very fundamental, like we started talking about at the very beginning of this retreat, this, that very fundamental movement of just pulling back a little bit, which is a neurologic process probably very early in life. Um, completely innocent, harmless in its own right. But for whatever reason, accident, mistake, or maybe not, maybe to help us to the next level of evolution of consciousness or something, who knows? Maybe it's just a simple neurologic process that has no right or wrong to it, just what happens. But somehow that simple misperception, and it is a misperception experientially that there is a me back here or that there's something back here or that there's an ability to be apart from anything ever, ever. That, that, that apartness exists in, in reality somehow. That fundamental misperception gets a lot of stuff built on top of it, more and more complex structures or more and more complex methods of processing. Um, to put it in certain contemporary neo-advaita terminology, it becomes a seeker, an apparent seeker. And that apparent seeker goes about trying to find satisfaction, tries to find a way to make itself feel better. But the seeking preserves in one sense, or it, it um, punctuates the sense that there's something apart, there's something to seek, that there's something wrong, there's somewhere to get to, all of that. And the seeker can even know it's doing that. It can become very aware that, oh, I seek, and the seeking begets the more of the sense of separation, and yet something keeps wanting to seek. Um, I can try to stop seeking, but that's just another form of seeking. It's kind of a self-deluded seeking. <laughs> um, so it can be frustrating, of course. <coughs> but the truth of the situation is, since the seeker never existed in the first place, not as it's perceived, it's not going to find its completion. It's not going to find satisfaction. Really, it won't. Um, but in my opinion, it doesn't mean that there's not skillful means that can be brought to bear for the seeker. You can actually direct the seeking in certain ways through a koan or through self-inquiry that is very skillful and can dispel various levels of that hierarchy of illusions that cause the quote-unquote problem of being a human or being a suffering human. Uh, and so at some point, those, that scaffolding collapses, can collapse layer by layer. One random layer of it can collapse and the other layers are sort of still intact, trying to be something. Um, or sometimes they collapse like one after the other. It's like one layer of scaffolding collapses and hits the next layer and the next layer and they just collapse sequentially until the collapsing doesn't stop. Because the only thing that stops the collapse is another layer of identity. The only thing that <laughs> makes it seem like the collapse has ended, and oh, okay, whew, I can rest here, finally. This, is this enlightenment yet? 
it's pretty good. It must be, maybe, maybe it gets a little better than that. But you still, you don't realize like the, it's the holding that's keeping the illusion going a little bit. That the feeling like, oh, I got somewhere. I got there, here, there, whatever. And again, this is very deep in our processing. You may not be thinking this overtly, but it feels that way. It feels like, oh, this is, this is the place that I'm going to get to, right? Or something like that. But what ultimately happens is once the last layer collapses, then, then collapsing is just infinite. It never stops. It's like a death. Or like in guided meditation this morning, an unbinding that never stops. It's not like you, you, you are unbinding to this point where there's, there's a you that's unbound that can enjoy the world the way it wants to. It doesn't work that way. It's dispelled. The illusion is completely dispelled. And, and yet, something seems to be an experience still. And that something is not a thing. It's not a solid thing. Um, it has the nature of endless sort of unbinding or collapsing in one sense. Um, not holding but also this like really vivid, alive appearing, this appearance that is incredibly compelling. It's beautiful. It's alive. It's ineffable, not speakable, not definable, not, you can't find it exactly. And yet it's already everything. It's already every appearance. What makes these conventional appearances appear at all is it. It's, it's that juicy light, sensation, you know, all of it. But it's also married to the unbinding. It's married to the dying. It's married to the collapsing that never stops. Inwardly moving all the time into itself, just dissolving into itself, you could say. These are just poetic ways of saying it because there's not, there's no words for this, for sure. But, um, but at this level, then it becomes extremely, something becomes extremely settled in a, in a strange way. Settled because you know there's no practice so much. Um, there can be realignments of attention perhaps here and there. Uh, there can be a waxing and waning of the clarity of this for sure, for, for a time, for a long time maybe, maybe forever. Um, but there's nothing you need to do. You don't need to rectify a situation. You don't need to finally prove something about yourself or about what's not yourself or any of it. Like that stuff's over. It's just a matter of experience, full experience. And that experience can be any, literally anything. This is why the shadow work is so important because you'll never see this fully in, in my opinion and from what I've seen in others and myself and so forth, you'll never really see this part of things unless you've done a considerable amount of shadow work <laughs> because you will mistake, you will still have a finger on the scale about what presence is and what it isn't. Presence only feels good. Well, what about the presence of abject fear? That's presence as well. Like it or not, it is. It's part of life, it's part of being alive. Without fear, animals wouldn't survive very long at all, right? Without, there's emotions that are just part of being alive. Fear is one of them. And then for humans, because of all this identity uh, stuff going on, we have these other complex emotions that have to be worked through. Shame, guilt, resentment, these things. Kind of time-based, based, partially based on delusion and partially a sort of natural emotion. But the emotions of fear, sadness, anger, very natural. 
adaptive, important. They're also just part of the kaleidoscope of experience. So that's the, if there's a lesson in, in the whole of shadow work, that's it. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's part of presence. One of the things I sometimes will say to somebody on occasion, it just comes up this way where they're just, they're, they're just going through a lot, usually a lot of emotion. Um, and I'll just remind them that, you know, there's presence that feels expansive and presence that feels scintillating and enjoyable and like, ah, just a relief finally, you know, there's that kind of presence, but it's no less or more presence when you're feeling fear, doubt, shame. That's still presence, just in a different form. And the only one that's not a one that, that actually could make that distinction is the self, the seeming separate individual that doesn't want it that way. It can, be, it can take a long time to see that there's a, actually a big difference between something being um, uncomfortable and actually not wanting it. Those seem like the same thing for a long time, but they're not at all. You can feel something that's uncomfortable without not wanting it. There are different mechanisms. And that, that can be a really good investigation to take up when you're feeling uncomfortable. Is the not wanting intrinsic to the discomfort or is it added on? Is it an interpretation that happens very quickly? Right? I was watching, I was at the store buying bread for um, French toast, I guess, today. Someone getting French toast today? Tomorrow? I don't know. It's French toast in your, in your future, apparently. But there was a kid who was having a meltdown. <laughs> Oh, there was a kid having a meltdown and the mom was not managing it super well, I don't think. Uh, I mean, the, the girl was just overwhelmed with emotion, you know, and like, I kind of wanted to just like nudge the mom and just go, just give her a hug, like just grab her, you know, she's losing it. Um, but the mom was in her head and like, uh, you know, trying to argue with the child about what she's feeling. It was just like, oh my gosh. But it's, you see repression happening. You see how it happens. Child's feeling an intense experience and instead of just being in the experience with them as an adult and hugging them and moving through it with them, it's like, no, this, this is why you shouldn't be feeling this. And this is, you know, but it's not even saying it that way. It's like turning it into this big story about what the kid wants and what the mom wants the kid to do and, you know, all this. So you can see quickly how that happens, like early in life, where we're taught when you feel an intense emotion, um, that's undesirable. You should not want that, right? Why? Because when you feel that way, when you act that way, whatever, mom, dad, criticize you, shame you, shut you down, maybe ignore you, who knows, whatever their dysfunctional coping mechanisms are, right? So that, you can see why we believe that because something's uncomfortable, I should not want it. It's not wantable. Uh, it's a negative emotion versus a positive emotion, right? Don't you feel sorry for those emotions that everyone's calling negative all the time? It's like when you're a kid and everyone calls you the bad kid or something, the dirty kid. Like, imagine what that does to your psyche, right? Um, every child experiences sadness. Every child experiences fear. Every child experiences anger. These are normal. Pro and, uh, I would hazard to guess a very small percentage of parents really help, uh, really can support a child through that without adding delusion to the system. Very few probably can. I'm sure there are that can, there are some that can can, and I would 
love to interview them about how they got that way. <laughs> but uh, but when we come to a place of deep and profound equanimity, equanimity means we're not picking and choosing experiences. There's no delusion that there's any benefit from saying no to something. There's no delusion that there's any benefit from saying no to something, to an ex your own experience. There's no benefit, well, primarily because, strangely, you actually can't say no, which is really weird. You can't actually distance yourself from anything. There's nothing, there's no self to distance and there's no object out there. That's the, the sort of very obvious lesson of non-dual realization, but still the mind will try. <laughs> the mind will try to find a way to do it sometimes. Um, but there's no, there's no way to actually make distance. You can't actually say no. So you have to create, the only way you can say no is create an illusory world, inner world. You have to create something that doesn't exist to say no, to distance yourself. So when you create something that doesn't exist, you're, you're participating in delusion, you're, com you're complicit in it. Innocently complicit, but you're complicit. You're putting energy into it, into that inner, inner world, this, the, the me, the story of me, my, my life, my problems, and all of it. Um, and it takes a lot of energy to keep that going and it's distorting in nature. And the more layers of identity that are built, the more distorting in nature it gets, the more distorting it gets. So we're putting a lot of energy into causing ourselves to see the world through distortion. And it's not actually doing what we really think it's supposed to be doing if we look, go all the way back to the beginning. We think it's supposed to protect us from something or distance us from the truth of reality. There's no way to distance yourself from the truth of reality. You're a you know, bag of flesh that's going to die End of story. There's not much more to it. <laughs> all your beliefs, all your everything you worked for, all of your knowledge, all of your realizations, all of that is going to die with you in a pretty short time. Not being mean, I'm just being honest. And it is so beautiful. It's really beautiful when you see it for what it is. But when you avoid it, hide from it, live in the mind pretending it's not going to happen or just avoiding thinking about the truth that it is going to happen, like the documentary we saw the other night, The Grief Walker. Um, it's a different way of living. Everything has its place, including this body and this mind. It has its place in the, in the cosmos, and it's just a momentary blip, and it's gone, just like everything. It's so beautiful and so you know, lovely, right? There's something that doesn't come and go, really, but it's not a thing. It's not a background or a basis or a ground of being. There's a knowing of sort of the absolute side of things. Um, but when realization matures, that, that absolute side of things is not at all divided from the relative side of things. They're intertwined. So it's like simultaneously heartbreaking and also absolutely beautiful and sublime. Life just as it is, without illusions, delusions. And there can still be relative misperceptions or relative misunderstanding. You will never have all the knowledge and all the relative knowledge in the world. It's not going to happen. You can still misjudge things. But 
you have a far better chance of judging things properly in the relative when you've dispelled the fundamental illusion in the, let's call it the absolute sense, the sense of the self, what's what, the inward journey. And then you become the enjoyer. The conventional you is the enjoyer of experience. Then it's just a matter of how deeply can you enjoy experience? How willing are you to be surprised? How willing are you to notice you don't really have control even if you think you do at any given moment? Then it is all play. It's interesting that um, I think far more frequently than not, people who have terminal illnesses, people who have uh, a limited lifespan based on a disease process that they were born with, uh, people who have been through true near-death experiences often see more clearly, see more deeply, enjoy life more actually, enjoy life more uh, because they're not living in the illusion of how living in the illusion, um, hiding how fragile it really is from themselves. The beauty of this that we're doing here is you don't have to wait for a tragedy or a, you know, life-threatening illness. Although some of us will have those. That's just how it goes. Probably all of us will have them in some form, um, some sooner than others. That's just how life goes. But you can take up this challenge early on or right now, because why not? <laughs> what else are you going to do? More of the same? And if you want to do more of the same or, or, you know, whatever, I'd just say, well, how's that working out for you? If it's working great, great. But if you say it's working great and then you're, part of you goes, wait a minute. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm suffering then there's um, good news. This can be addressed in this lifetime, in the form your life is in. As rich as you are, as poor as you are, as single as you are, as in a relationship as you are, as many kids as you have, doesn't matter. I, get, I still get so many comments on YouTube of like, do you know of someone who's woken up who has, whose dad is black, whose mom is white, who's kind of non-binary, and works at a library. I'm like, okay, none of the qualities you have that you think make you different than others are gonna prevent you from waking up. It just does not matter. But I, that doesn't stop me from trying to find that person. I like to interview all kinds of people, blue collar, white collar, older, younger, every skin color, all the different, everything. Yeah. Um, and I do it just for that reason because I know the ego is so sneaky. It'll tell you like, well, well, it works for all those guys. It works for the rich guy and the poor guy and the diseased guy and the guy who's healthy and the married guy and the single guy. And it works for this person who has you know, mental illness and works for them, but it's not going to work for me, right? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I mean, how many videos do I have to put up of people waking up <laughs> to show that it's possible?
So it's possible, of course, for you in this lifetime. But it's going to scare you. <clears throat> and then when you just think you can't handle any more, you're going to get more <laughs> of all of it. So no matter how somebody's doing on this, this is maybe an aside, but no matter how somebody's doing on this journey, this process, call it a journey, call it no journey, call it whatever you want. No matter how somebody's doing, how long it's taking them, how messy it is for them, um, I have utmost admiration for them because, like I said in my book, this is the ultimate adventure. This is the most transformation you will ever possibly come into contact with in this lifetime, and bar none. And anyone who goes through this knows that. It goes beyond, 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 beyond. It gets big and then it gets bigger. It takes you to places you can't even know are there until it takes you there. Um, so I have respect for anyone going through this. Um, admiration. It's a crazy process in a lot of ways. Like, why would I, you know, there's, you can't get through this without a tremendous amount of self-doubt. Why am I doing this? What the hell is this? This is nuts. I'm sure 80% of the people in this room at some point in this week decided this is crazy. What the fuck are we doing here? I want out. Like, I'm going to get in my car and drive away. Oh, God, I flew here. I'm going to go to the airport, calling an Uber, right? It happens. It happens to all of us, right? Uh, it pushes you beyond your ego boundaries. But it's great. So, nothing I'd rather be doing. Chad? No. <laughs> he always says it's my favorite thing. <laughs> right? It's crazy. It's disorienting. It's terrifying sometimes. It's sublime, sacred, all of it. But it's beyond, the key to all of this is it's going beyond you somehow. Beyond what you think your boundaries are, beyond what you th think you understand about the world and yourself, beyond what you think your capacity to experience is. This is a deep one. It takes you beyond what you think your capacity to experience is. You'll feel like you're being pulled apart <clears throat> energetically sometimes. It's that, it's that, and it's, you can't prepare for that. But... Something knows the whole time that it's okay, you know, and the reminders can be helpful. Many people have done this before you. Many matriarchs and patriarchs throughout centuries have sometimes, many times, most times, dedicated their lives to this and become monastics in history. There's, it's different now. The world is different now. Um, you don't have to become, you didn't have to before, but it, at least in the traditions and the, the doctrine we have and, and the histories, it was these were monastics, people who left worldly possessions, worldly lives, wandered around, you know, in mendicancy and all of it. It still happens now, but it's far more likely that you'll be a householder, someone who is married or does have relationships or does work or whatever, um, and still going through this fully and you can every everyone listening to this can take this all the way through and never settle for 
believing someone, a teacher or anyone who either says or suggests that you can't. Keep looking because you can. And there are people who will demonstrate that for you. Very ordinary people. Someone mentioned um, in a comment, I think on uh, YouTube, uh, Buddha field. I've never heard this term actually. The idea that there are like a bunch of people being realized simultaneously. I don't know if that's from ancient doctrine or where that came from. I've heard of it, just the term Buddha field as a cult. <laughs> there was a cult called Buddha field somewhere along the line. But um, there's a really good documentary about it called Holy Hell. It was really a shit show. It's a, it's a really interesting one if you're interested in documentaries about cults. But anyway, the term obviously is older than that. And it was this idea of this like mutual awakening that, that propagates itself among very common people. That's certainly happening right now for sure, which is awesome. You know, you don't have to go worship a teacher. Worship an enlightened person and hope they throw you some spiritual bone and give you a little you know, boost of Shakti. <laughs> I'm not even saying that can't happen. I mean, it can, and the transmission does happen, but there are, without a doubt, many and probably maybe most big spiritual groups with one central leader um, where there's a lot of built-in delusion about that's the enlightened one up there. We're all the audience, you know. Um, maybe someday I'll get a little bit of what they have, but I'm not. I'm not them. I mean, they're they're an avatar. They're a living god. You know, um, that's nonsense. We're we're gonna end that in this generation, truly, because it lead. The reason is not. I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying it leads to abuse of humans, of sincere spiritual seekers. They end up abused and you know abused at worst, but at best, wasting a lot of time or at worst, maybe going to jail for a few years, something like that. I mean, worse, worse than that happens. Worse than that happens to people. You know, they get sexually abused. They get all their life savings taken away. They get talked into killing themselves, right? All kinds of weird stuff happens. Um, totally unnecessary. This is available to everyone. I don't have anything more to say. Do you have anything more to say, Cleopatra? She doesn't have anything to say either. What? What? I think she's going to say something. No. Okay, we can ding out. <laughs>